This morning we'll be looking at a passage out of Mark chapter 2. And in our adult Christian education, uh, beginning next week, we'll have a class that's looking at the Gospel of Mark for several months. So this is a, a bit of a preview for you. So if you have a Bible or if you've got your bulletin handy, you can look at the passage. It's in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I don't know how many of you spend time uh, on the Internet or have gotten involved in different social networks like Facebook or uh, some of the other ones that exist. But this week my reputation was almost ruined by the Internet. It was. It was It was scary. I was on uh, I was on Facebook. I'm on Facebook, and and I got a gift from an old friend who I'd not been in contact from for a while. Now, Facebook, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, it's this it's this social network where you have an identity, a profile uh, on the internet, and you can put all your hobbies and your interests, and you collect friends. Uh, they may not really be friends, but they're, they're people that you call friends, and it makes you feel good when you have a lot of them. Uh, and so, so you think, yeah, I haven't talked to you in 20 years, but we're, we're Facebook buddies. Uh, and you can, you can do all kinds of uh, fake little things, like you can buy each other gifts, and, and you receive gifts, and uh, it's really kind of this whole other false reality, uh, this world that you can go into. But anyway, I get this gift. Uh, somebody bought me a drink, uh, which seems a little strange. But and I, and I don't usually accept these gifts. Sometimes I do, but uh, I thought, well, you know, I haven't connected with this person in, in a while, and this could be fun. Um, so I click accept. Well, you can't just get the gift. You have to get this whole other application loaded onto your computer which I usually don't like to do because you don't know what's coming in and they want all this information and they want access to everything. But I said, you know what? It'd be fun to connect with this guy and, and to have this gift. So, so I get this application. Well, if you're familiar with Facebook, you know that there's a thing called a news feed. And what a news feed is is that every time you go on Facebook, all of your virtual friends, uh, whatever they're doing, comes across your news feed. And so you hear that, uh, that Chris Hatton is, is cheering for USC, and he's really, no, not no. Uh, and so-and-so is going out shopping, and, and, and so-and-so is, is really cramming hard for this test. And Well, I noticed that as soon as I accept this gift, on my news feed it says, David is passing out drinks. And I said, wait, no, I'm not. I'm not passing out drinks. Uh, you know, I mean, if it had said... If it had said David received a glass of champagne from an old friend on New Year's Eve, well, maybe that would be tolerable. But, but David is passing out drinks. Uh, you know, that could, be taken, that could be taken the wrong way. And I started thinking about my Facebook friends who might see this. I've got pastor friends and seminary professors and, and my mother. My mother's on Facebook. What's she going to think? You know, yes, my mother's on Facebook and, and she's my friend. After, after several years of, of telling parents of college and high school students that they need to be on Facebook so they can be aware of what their children are doing, now I'm getting a dose of my own medicine. And so I'm thinking, how is that going to sound? The pastor is passing out drinks. You know, it's one thing to get a bottle of wine for somebody, you know, maybe a, a, a business associate and 
And nobody knows if you re-gift it or you enjoy it. You know, it doesn't really matter. And you can pretend that, oh, I'll just put this on the shelf and use it another time. But passing out drinks, you know, that could offend some people's social sensibilities. And I thought, you know, some people might not be comfortable with this. And so I quickly figured out how to erase that from my news feed. Now, I'm borrowing from Jeremy Reeves' creativity here. What if I told you that Jesus was at a huge party and he was buying all the drinks? Gasp. When we get over that, wait, it gets better. Wait till you hear who's at the party. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 2. Jesus in this passage is going to give us a little foretaste of what heaven will look like. And it may shock some of our sensibilities, but hopefully it will give us great freedom. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our Father, we are here this morning because we trust in the power of your word, not in the power of any preacher. I'm aware this morning of my frailty as a vessel, but I pray that you would speak powerfully through me and through your word, that your spirit would use it to shock our sensibilities, but more than anything, to give us great freedom and a longing For the feast. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, the first thing that always happens after a presidential primary is this big buzz about who the the presidential candidate is going to pick for their running mate. Because we know that who a person chooses to align with, to associate with, is going to reflect on them in very significant ways. And so there's always a buzz about who's going to be picked and and who maybe should be picked but won't because of this negative light that it will cast on the candidate. Well, Jesus, very early in his ministry, picks his closest associates. And in Mark chapter 1, we saw Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee and he calls four fishermen to come and to be his disciples. And here in this passage... He's along the seashore again, and he walks by a tax booth. 
And he calls somebody who's going to be a very unlikely pick. See, this man Levi uh, was a toll collector, a little bit different from a tax collector. What his job was, was to sit at this toll booth that would have been situated along the sea, and from there he could collect tolls, customs, from anybody passing by in a ship or anybody walking by on the road. And he was collecting money from his own people. If you know anything about tax collectors in the New Testament, you know that they are a despised class of people. The religious leaders hated them because they were defiled. They dealt with dirty money and they dealt with dirty people. And even the common people despised them because they were unpatriotic. They were working for a government that nobody liked. They were oppressing their own people. They were involved in extortion. They were taking more than they should to fill their own pockets, to make themselves rich. And they were defiled. So they were hated. They were seen as, as traitors. You know, it's it said that they were excommunicated from the synagogue. So they were cut off. And their disgrace went even to their family. And this is who Jesus chooses to follow him. So Jesus comes to this despised oppressor and he calls him. He says, Follow me. And what happens? Levi is transformed on the spot. A radical transformation takes place. Why? Because this despised one, this one who has been rejected for most of his life, is all of a sudden accepted. He's reached out to. And it changes him. Luke, in in this account, tells us that he left everything and followed Jesus. Radical transformation. He walks away from his former life and follows Jesus. That's a picture of what repentance is. And so what we learn from this is that that the grace of Jesus can reach anyone. Now, if it can reach this hardened, traitorous oppressor, it can change anybody. Who is it that you think is beyond the pale of God's grace? They're not. Wherever you may be, whatever you may have done, you're not outside the reach of Jesus' grace. But what's interesting now is to think about who Jesus has called to himself. He's got these four fishermen that have been following him. And now all of a sudden, he adds this guy who has probably been the one that's been cheating them for the last several years. Who's been charging them way too much for all of their fish taxes. Now think about that. What's this small group going to be like? All these people that have been at odds with each other. And so what we begin to see in seed form is that Jesus is creating this new community that is radically different. It's not based upon profession or socioeconomic status or political affiliations. It's based only on one thing, need and a desire to be forgiven. And when people respond to that need and say, yes, I want to come, it changes everything. 
It enables them to live together in this new community. So what, what is the next thing that takes place? Well, immediately we see that Jesus is reclining at a meal. And Luke describes it as a great feast. There's this great feast taking place, and it's taking place in Levi's house. So he's converted. He begins to follow Jesus, and the first thing that he does is he throws a big party and invites all of his friends. He wants them to meet this one who has come into his life and affirmed him and accepted him. And the language that they are reclining lets us know that this is more than just any old meal. Because at a normal meal, they would have been sitting. But the fact that they're reclining lets us know that this is something festal. This is a great feast. But the interesting thing is who is there? How does Mark describe for us who's there? He says that there were many tax collectors and sinners who were there. You know, sinners obviously is, is a very broad category. And, and in this context, it's referring to people who, like the tax collectors, are, are ritually defiled. But it's more than that. They're, they're morally corrupt. These people are being lumped in with the murderers, the adulterers, the thieves, the liars. This is who Jesus is having this feast with. And the interesting thing is that this is a picture of something else. Jesus is displaying before the eyes of everybody what everything is moving towards, a great feast. What's the first act that Jesus does? What's his first miraculous act? He's at a wedding in Cana, and he makes it an even better occasion. And so here we see Jesus is throwing this, this, he's at this great feast, and it's a picture of the Messianic banquet. Well, now the, the scribes and the Pharisees get wind of this party that's taking place. And the scribes of the Pharisees are, are the religious moralists. They're the, the sticklers. They're the ones that, that they, they keep the rules. They're aware of everything. You know, one commentator described what they did as, as keeping a garden. They saw the law as a garden with lots of flowers. And to make sure that no one would ever come close to stepping on a flower, they put walls around the garden. They put rules beyond the rules so that you wouldn't possibly be able to get close enough to break one of the important rules. And here is this religious leader who is flagrantly breaking all of the rules. He should have known who he was eating with. He should have known that these people and their food was defiled. He should have known that this would defile him. Doesn't he care? Doesn't he care what this looks like to everybody else? Is this the kind of party that they wanted to go to? I mean, they were expecting the Messianic banquet. They were looking forward to it. But now when Jesus gives them a picture of what it looks like, they say, that's nothing like what we wanted. That's not what we were expecting. Now, they weren't likely invited to this feast, but would they have wanted to come and participate if they were? You know, one of the interesting things about technology um, and invitations is that now 
when we invite people to a party, we can create Facebook events or send out evites. And the interesting thing with these different media is that you can now see the entire guest list who's invited to a particular event or party. And that, that gives you a new freedom as you think about whether or not you want to go or not because you can see if your friends are going or if they're not. And uh, on the one hand, it can give people some incentive to go to something because they say, well, I know I'm going to be in good company. I know my friends are going to be there. There's going to be people that I like, that I can relate to there. But on the other hand, you can also see, wow, I'm not so sure that I really like these people or have much in common with them. Maybe I'm not going to go to this particular event. And so it gives us this much greater ability to kind of pick and choose what we, what we attend based on our increased knowledge of who's going to be there. Now think about how the scribes of the Pharisees were responding when they saw this, this Facebook invite list. They're going, Jesus, do you know who these people are? These are outcasts. Why are you with them? So what's their concern? You know, they, they mention eating two times, which kind of gives us, gives us a clue that the, the thing that they are concerned with is purity, is defilement. Because one of the ways that you get defiled is by eating the wrong food in the wrong place. You know, if you go to a party with these folks, you don't know that they've tithed everything that they're serving you. You don't know that they've washed everything the way that they're supposed to. And just going in their house is going to defile you. But Jesus doesn't seem to care what's going on in their hearts as they, as they sit outside the house and question Jesus' disciples. What's going on in there? Why are those people in this feast? Why is he with them? Those people haven't worked like we've worked. They don't keep the rules like we keep the rules. We've labored. They don't deserve this feast. This is not the picture of the Messianic banquet that we have been envisioning. But what they fail to see is that rather than being defiled by what he touches, Jesus makes clean what he touches and comes into contact with. And he says to them, you know, it's, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. He quotes a common proverb that they would have known and that they would have agreed with. Of course, of course it's not the healthy who need a doctor. We expect the doctor to be with the sick people. No one expects the, the doctor is going to be cloistered away at the country club with, with healthy, wealthy people. They're going to be with the sick people. But Jesus goes on to say, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus says, I'm the great physician. I came for this very purpose, to heal those who are sick. To feast with those who are unclean. And so what we see in this passage is that Jesus welcomes sick people to his feast. Jesus welcomes sick people to his feast. 
I don't know if that's who you want to have to your dinner party. I tend to want to stay away from people that I think are going to infect me. I'm going to wash my hands a couple extra times if I shake somebody's hand after they've been coughing. But Jesus says, those are the people that I am inviting to my feast. But the funny thing is, he makes this distinction between, between the healthy and the sick, and then between the righteous and the sinners. But who is it that needs to be healed? Well, obviously, it's, it's the sinners there, but who are the righteous? Is there really anybody even in that category? You know, the scribes of the Pharisees would think themselves in that category, so maybe the righteous is those who think they're healthy but aren't. Or maybe that category is kind of an empty set, a hypothetical other that really doesn't have anybody in it. Jesus obviously doesn't envision anybody who doesn't need his healing. But the thing about a doctor is that you'll only go when you know you need to be healed, when you've given up on yourself. You know, every time I get a a cold, my great fear is that it's going to progress into a sinus infection because it usually does and it knocks me out for a week. So as soon as I, I get the first hint of a cold, I go to work. You know, I start pounding Tylenol and Sudafed and vitamin C and echinacea and I started doing this funny nasal wrench that uh, Pastor Hatton taught me about and trying to flush things out. And I, you know, I do everything that I possibly can. But sometimes that's just not enough. You know, and when I realize that I'm getting whipped, that's when I say, okay, mercy, I'm going to the doctor. And when I go to the doctor, I'm not looking for advice. You know, I don't want him to, to tell me I need to rest. I'm looking for a cure. Give me the antibiotics. That's what I'm here for. I need what only you can give me. I need what I can't get for myself and what I can't do for myself. Jesus is saying everybody is in the category of the sick people. But there are some people who don't realize they're in that category. And that is the most deadly place to be. Because if you're sick and you know you're sick, you can go and get the treatment that you need. And very likely, you can be healed. But if you're sick and you don't know you're sick, and you refuse to believe that you're sick, and you refuse to go to the only place that you can be properly diagnosed and healed, then you're going to die. There's no two ways about it. And so Jesus is saying that there are some people that are in that position that think they are healthy, but they're not. The reality is that we cannot be healed until we admit that we're sick. And this is the very thing that the Pharisees can't do. And why is it? Why can they not just admit that? Why can't they come enjoy this feast? Why can't they say, hey, you know what? We'd like to be a part of this party. Can we come? The reason that they can't is because they are radically insecure. For them to come into this house would be admitting something that they're not willing to admit. It would be defiling them in a way that they're not willing 
to be defiled. It would mean associating with people that they're not willing to associate with. Because their whole standing, their whole status is based upon their performance. Their perception of their own ability, their own achievements, their own desert. And so they get this superiority complex. And the way that they can maintain this image of themselves is only by looking out at others and saying, look at them. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that person. I never do that. Look at what I do. That's the only way that they can maintain their status is to point out the flaws in others. And so they can't possibly come into this feast that would mean putting themselves on the same level and exposing themselves to the same disease that's going around in this feast. There's a movie, Gattaca, that some of you may have seen. It's, it's a science fiction movie, but it's, um, it's kind of mainstream. And there's a main character called Vincent Freeman. And in this movie, he finds himself in this world where one's DNA determines everything about their life, their future, their vocation, their potential. See, from the moment of conception, it's already determined exactly what your life is going to look like, what occupation you'll have based upon your, your potential. And so Vincent Freeman is an unfortunate soul who doesn't have the right DNA. And so he's destined to never do more than clean up after all of the people with perfect DNA. But what he does is he finds this person who does have perfect DNA, and, but who has been injured. And, and he's had this secret injury, and nobody knows about it. And so they, they work out this, this partnership whereby... Vincent will get this guy named Eugene's DNA and he will pretend to be the perfect guy, Eugene. He'll take his job, he'll, he'll take on his whole life and they'll split the pay. But what this does to Vincent is it, it causes him to live in a world of constant fear, of constant insecurity that he's going to be found out because there's DNA checkers all over the place. And so every day before he goes to work, he's got to scrub himself. He's got to scrub off every bit of loose skin. He's got to trim his fingernails. He's got to, he's got to completely sanitize himself to make sure that not even a hair falls onto his keyboard that might be detected and expose him as being less than perfect. And so he takes this other guy's fingernails and scatters them around his keyboard so that so that the cleaners will find out that, will, will think that he's someone that he's not. Radical insecurity. But the interesting thing is that even on the other side, those on the other side of the fence, those that do have the DNA, are radically insecure. His brother, who has better genes than he does, is constantly, constantly trying to track down Vincent trying to prove that he can't possibly measure up. Radical insecurity because of a life based upon performance. 
Is that not the way it is for you? Is that not, you, you kids who are in junior high, is that not the reason that there are certain people that you're scared to associate with? It's not really that they're so appalling or so terrible to be with, is it? In another world, you could probably be their friends. But it's the fact that there is a group of insiders who has labeled certain people as outsiders. And your great fear is that if you're seen with the outsider, you'll be guilty by association. You'll be banned. You'll have that mark on you. What Jesus is saying is that there are insiders and there are outsiders, but it's the outsiders who are becoming the insiders in this new kingdom. So we see the sinners and the tax collectors, those who know their need, flocking to Jesus, flocking to this feast. But is there any hope for the religious leaders on the outside? What would it take for them to come into this feast? They say themselves, how can Jesus associate with sinners like them? Maybe they need to reflect on their own question because it's actually a very good question. How can Jesus associate with people like them? And it's only because he is able to make clean that which is unclean. He's able to enter into the messiness. And he has. And as they reflect on that, they might just begin to see that they're a little bit messy themselves. See, the only way for us to have real communion with God, the only way for us to be able to feast with God, is because he has entered into our messiness our brokenness. That's the way it's always been. If we look back to Exodus, you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus chapter 32, after God has brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and God takes Moses up on Mount Mount Sinai to give him the law, and this is going to be great, and God's people are being constituted. But what happens? While Moses is up on the mountain, the people make a golden calf and they start worshiping an idol. And so Moses comes down and God says, you know what, Moses, let's just forget about them. I'm going to wipe them out. I can't go with this people. They're a stiff-necked people. So let's just start over, Moses. You and I, I'll make a new people for you. And Moses says, no, God, don't. Don't do that. And so God says, okay, But I can't be in the midst of this people because they are a stiff-necked people. If I for a moment was in their presence, I would consume them because they are so unholy and so defiled. And so here's what we're going to do, Moses. We're going to set up a tent of meeting outside the camp. And that's where I'm going to go meet with you. But I can't be in the midst of the people because they're so stiff-necked. But what does Moses say? He says, God, if you will not go up with us, then don't send us up at all. What will the nations around think if our God is not in our midst? So he says, God, come dwell in our midst because we're a stiff-necked people and forgive us of our iniquity. 
And in John chapter 1, John tells us that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us and dwelt among us. The Son of God comes down and lives in the midst of His messy people. And we're just as stiff-necked as we've ever been. So what is Jesus accomplishing by doing this? What is He accomplishing with the tax collectors and the sinners? Don't you see that He is transforming them by His very actions in the moment as He eats with them, as He welcomes them, as He offers His acceptance, as He gives them what they have not had They're changed. They're feasting. They're welcomed. And the very thing that they are called to is repentance. See, this isn't some some crazy sinful party that he's calling them to. He's not saying, you know what, live however you want. He's saying, in fact, Luke even says this, I've called the sick to repentance. But true repentance is turning toward Jesus and a true feast. And that feast changes everything. There's, there's a movie, great movie, uh, it's called Babette's Feast. And I'm aware that many of you are reading Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, and he actually talks about this movie in the last chapter. And I actually wasn't aware that he talked about it in the last chapter until I'd already decided to use this illustration, but... You can read more about it in the book. But basically, it's, it's this story of a community on the coast in Denmark, this very bleak, dreary community. And there are these two women whose father has been the leader of this religious sect, this very strict, oppressive religious sect. And he dies, and, and rather than pursue their dreams and their desires... They carry on in their father's footsteps, leading this, this community. And this, this young woman named Babette has to flee to this community. And she comes and she lives there and she works with them and she serves them. And towards the end of the movie, this woman Babette gets word that she has won the lottery. It's an amazing thing. She's won the lottery, but rather than go back home and live a life of, of wealth and happiness, she decides to send for all of this food. Wonderful food. It turns out that she is one of the greatest chefs. And so she gets all these exotic foods and she prepares this feast with all kinds of succulent fare, turtle soup, things that people have never even tasted. And she invites all of these grumpy villagers who have grown cold and hardened and bitter who all have broken relationships with each other, and she invites them in to this feast. And I'll admit that this is a pretty slow-going movie, but the imagery in in this feast scene is worth the wait. Because that's all that takes place, is you watch people, grumpy, angry looking people, who don't get along with each other, some of whom haven't talked to each other for years, And they start to eat. And as they take a bite of turtle soup, all of a sudden something starts to happen inside of them. And a smile begins to break out across some of their faces. And before long, they're starting to talk to each other. And 
Then all of a sudden they begin forgiving one another for past grievances. And they start enjoying one another's company. And the walls become to, begin to come down and hearts begin to melt. Why? Because they've been welcomed into this feast that they don't deserve to be at. And they know they don't deserve to be there. And they didn't do anything to get there. And they didn't pay a dime to be there. But it's just been lavished upon them and it begins to break their hearts. And it begins to create a new community, a community of grace and of welcome and of forgiveness. But the interesting thing is, we think, well, yes, and they came absolutely free of charge. And they did. But the feast wasn't free. The feast cost everything. It cost the entire winnings of the lottery to put this feast on for these grumpy people. Jesus welcomes his people to a feast. He welcomes us to come not based upon anything in us or anything that we've done or anything that we ever could do. There's no price for us to pay. The only the only price is that we recognize our need. But the cost of the feast was infinite. The cost of the feast was his own life. And yet he welcomes us to come just as we are, weak and weary. One of the great hymns that we sometimes sing is, Come ye sinners. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to call us to his feast. Come ye sinners. Poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity joined with power. Come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, but sinners Jesus came to call. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness that He requires is to know your need of Him. Before Jesus went to the cross, He put on a feast, another feast, for His disciples. And He instituted there the Lord's Supper. And He said, I'm not going to eat this feast. I'm not going to eat this bread or drink this wine again until I drink it with you in the kingdom of heaven. But, oh, I will feast with you again. There will be a great feast in the future. And you are to remember that week by week as you eat this meal together. It's a foretaste of heaven that we are about to celebrate. And there's no fee to participate. The only requirement is that you know your need. Is that you know your need of what is being offered and the one who is offering it to you. But don't think that this, that this feast is free. Don't think it didn't cost anything. It cost the life of the Son of God to provide this for us. And so as we come now to the Lord's Supper, if you have followed Jesus in baptism... If you have committed yourself to a community, to a church where the gospel of free grace is proclaimed and loved, then this meal is for you. 
And as you come, think about the freeness that you can experience knowing that this is a feast not for those who have it all together, but for those who are sick and needy. You know, if that is the definition, then there is no insecurity because there's no expectation that you bring anything. The expectation is that you come to receive. So that's what we are going to do together. So let us pray and ask that He would use this bread and this cup to remind us of the great feast that awaits us. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would use this bread and this cup to nourish us, that You would feed our souls, that You would give us great joy as we celebrate with one another the richness of the banquet that has been laid before us, that Your Son would give His own life that his body would be broken and his blood shed for grumpy and sick people like ourselves. And as we eat, would you do a work in our hearts even now? Would you transform us? Would you cause smiles to break across frowning faces? Would you lift up downcast souls? Would you overwhelm us with the fact that you Long to dwell in the midst of your people and to feast with us, even though we are a stiff-necked people. Remind us that you have forgiven all of our iniquity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.